the progress of redemption in Zephaniah. Not so hard to get the major theme uh, out of the book here. The major theme in Zephaniah is very simply the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And um, perhaps the day of the Lord to you, it might seem like um, it's only a notional idea. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's not a definite period of time. It's uh, just sort of an era it might seem that way. Perhaps as you read the scriptures, it may not seem to you that when there's reference made to the day of the Lord or the consummation of all things, or when you look particularly in the book of Revelation or maybe in one of the prophet's uh, words in Daniel or something, it might seem that the day of the Lord is just, as I said, just simply an epoch of time that uh, stretches out over an undeterminate amount of time. But it would be important for us to recognize that the day of the Lord is the consummation of all things. It is a, a singular event. It is a thing that will happen. It is uh, a situation that the world is headed toward. It is a theme of much of the writing in Scripture. And it has a number of purposes, not least of which is to bring uh, really an intensified exhortation to sobriety about the fact that uh, while we, uh, even as God's people, lament over the fact that the, uh, the unrighteous seem to rule the land, um, they're, you, you know, those who are wicked seem to gain footing every day and so forth and so on, and that seems incongruent to you, and in fact it is incongruent. It, it would be incongruent if there wasn't uh, a summation, a consummation of all things in which, the, in which the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who does stand not idly by, but the one who uh, has an, a keen eye on the actions of man, this God will bring to completion all things. He will settle all of his accounts. Those, those who are wicked... Uh, and remain so without redemption in Christ, will be cast into a fiery hell. And those imperfect souls who have been redeemed and humbled themselves in the face of God will, as the scripture says in Zephaniah, not merely survive. The Bible says they'll be renowned. They'll be commended on that day. No more mockery of those who follow the Lord on that day. Be no more lambasting those apparently foolish ones who spent their Sunday mornings worshiping the Lord together. There'll be no more poking fun at those who seem to make much careful attention to the sweetness of the moral commands of God. There'll be no more jesting over those who have albeit imperfectly, nonetheless committed themselves to following the Lord Jesus Christ. Those days will be over. And in the contemporary language of the day, the followers and the redeemed of Christ will be the eternal, if you will, rock stars of the world. Not in their own glory but in the glory of the one who purchased for us not only an opportunity for heaven, not only a one-time event, but an eternity of life and wonderment over God's purposes and plans, over the glories of creation, over
over the heaven and earth made new, over that which was made perfect will be perfect again for an eternity. Zephaniah writes about those things. And he writes about those things to a people who will either be redeemed and enjoy the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, that one who was spoken of so often in the past, or it will be without the glory and just justification of the Lord Jesus Christ in an eternal death that is nonetheless conscious and horrifying to even consider and think about. And so Zephaniah is talking about those things. As I said, the major theme of the book is simple enough to approach. It's mentioned many, many times, the day of the Lord. And what we see on that day primarily, as I've already mentioned, there'll be really primarily two things that will ultimately occur. And we recognize that uh, it, it is certainly possible and perhaps probable that none of us will experience in our lifetimes this day. Nonetheless, the intent is that it inform every single moment of our lives because the world is working toward this end and God's purpose is that we also incline ourselves and have our minds shaped as the Bible reveals not about even the present so much as the end. Our lives are to be informed by the end and that every moment of our life is not informed by what I'm enjoying necessarily at this moment while God gives us wonderful pleasures to enjoy in this moment. Our lives primarily are really shaped around the purpose and the end. This end. The consummation of all things. And so on that day, as chapter 3 verse 11 says, pride will be vanquished. And secondly, the humble will be saved. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 17. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. What we see on this day is two things. Uh, One is uh, a reminder of conversion, of the necessity of conversion, of the new life. We see that there will be a transition. People, people will have even their lips, the, the, uh, the organ of praising and proclaiming God. They'll have their lips renewed, right? Such that they can purely even call upon God. But also there will be a great removal. Those who have rejected God will no longer be present in the midst of the redeemed. It's something that we have not yet experienced. And so what we see on that day, we can run through Zephaniah's list here, beginning in chapter 1 in verse 8. Wicked leaders will be punished. Chapter 1, verse 8. Those who attempt to appease foreign powers, preferring them over God, will be punished. Now, uh, this may seem a little bit uh, uh, perhaps foreign to us, uh, the appeasement uh, of foreign nations, uh, but uh, the idea here is, is that uh, 
what Zephaniah has been drawn to identify is that there were many in the land at that time that were acting, shaping, even dressing what they did in such a way as to appease those who they were determined they would gain favor with and that it would go well with them. It's an interesting form of peer pressure. And the reality is is that uh, we fall into that trap sometimes ourselves. Uh, it is true uh, that, that that is a very powerful force. We've seen different eras in our own nation where that has been true, and perhaps you can identify times in your own life where that has been true. Chapter 1, verse 9, there will be a punishment of thievery, of violence, of fraud. Verse 11, the dishonest, misguided merchants. And I'm persuaded uh, this isn't uh, an attack on uh, business as it were, but it is when you, for instance, look at this and also the consummation of all things uh, revealed in the book of Revelation, what we see is that commerce misguided uh, is an incredible shaping influence and will be a very large influence in the land on that day of the final consummation. And that's something also that we, that's where we live as well. There's, there is an unfortunate overemphasis on uh, this, this concept of the making of money, as it were. What I do for a living. And it seems, unfortunately, that more and more it's easier for us to have our lives shaped around that paid vocation. Where God never intended it that way. And we may, we may cry out, oh, well, but our culture has led us in that way. Yes, culture will always lead us in a way that will draw our attention away from God. But I think what Zephaniah is addressing here is simply the undue influence that merchants had in the land. And that, of course, continues. We, we need merchants. Absolutely. We're dependent upon them, not in a sinful way. We're very grateful to be able to go and purchase the goods that we need. That's, there's not a problem with that. The, the purposes of the Scriptures aren't that every individual family have a self-sustaining farm where they grow wheat and raise cattle. That's not the idea. Uh, but the idea is, will this be in its proper place? And I think that's one of the things that Zephaniah is addressing in this case. As you see, verse 11, inhabitants of the mortar... The mortar was a location in Jerusalem where merchants were. And what we see here uh, in verses 10 uh, and verse 11 is the idea that the consummation of all things will affect all of the land. It will affect, you know, not only uh, as verse 10 says, the fish gate, the second quarter, the hills, also the inhabitants of the mortar, those merchants, all of, this, all of these areas will be impacted by the consummation of all things, the day of the Lord. Verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day 
of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The mighty man cries aloud. Conspicuous but fake manhood will fail on that day. Conspicuous but fake manhood will fail on that day. This is a very important theme for us. There has been a helpful emphasis on manhood that really started probably gaining momentum in the late 80s before most of you were born. But what has happened in the midst of that has been a marching across the vista of our culture, different perceptions of manhood, all taking advantage of the fact that unfortunately most young men grow up without a picture or an understanding of biblical manhood. And one of the things that uh, has been quite notorious and influential in our own local culture, has been what I am referring to as conspicuous manhood. It's the things that we have perhaps taken for granted that are a cultural expression of manhood, and we have unfortunately collectively decided that that in fact is manhood. When it isn't. It may be an expression of manhood, but it has become unhitched from the Scriptures. And and again, Zephaniah is lamenting that day. He is revealing that on that day, mighty men will despair. But it isn't going to be that way for the redeemed. You see, what happens to the redeemed in the exact same activity of the Lord will not be a weakening and a casting it away. It will be a strengthening. The same event will cast off the unredeemed and will strengthen the faithful. Verse 15, Much of the land characterized by wrath, distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, and gloom. I didn't make any of that up, by the way. Those are all words that are contained in verse 15 of chapter 1. Now, you may say, wow, uh, that sounds pretty gloomy. Well, it is gloomy. But wait for it. That's what Zephaniah is saying. There, there is goodness coming. There's goodness coming. 
And it's a sign for us to anticipate that we will be saved. But we'll look to the Lord, and that will be how we're saved. Verse 18 assures us of that. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. The redeemed will survive, and the redeemed will grow. And one of the aspects that's... uh, Revealed here in this concept of silver and gold, you may say, well, yeah, I mean, uh, I know I'm not going to buy my way into heaven or gain favor with the Lord by offering him a bag of silver, right? But the reality is, and one of the things that Zephaniah is drawing our attention to, is this idea that when things don't go well for us, we tend to incline ourselves to matters of expedience and utility. Has the truth ever been complicated for you to explain? Sometimes it's like that, you know. And what are you tempted to do on those rare occasions? Just tell a lie. Now that's something that actually is likely in all of our experiences, right? But that's simply an idea that Zephaniah is getting at with this idea of silver and gold. In other words, we're inclined to look for comfort in ways that God hasn't designed that are actually quite destructive. Survival, spiritual, physical, mental, emotional... You're like, man, this has really been a hard, a hard month. I've got to go shopping or I got to go shoot something or, you know, right? Those are all, I mean, obviously it needs to be legal, right? But nonetheless, I mean, um, but uh, those are not problems, right? I mean, we can go shopping and go hunting, and that's all, that's all good. But the point is, is that those activities were never designed to be replacements for God. And when we, when we kind of turn them into that, then we, we miss what it is that the Lord really has for us. And we may actually say, well, yes, I've received comfort from the Lord because I went shopping. But it would be important for us to recognize that shopping is fine. And it's okay for you to have fun shopping. You don't have to struggle, you know, I did the whole trip with a frown on my face. No, you don't have to do that. It's just that the idea is is that what am I looking to the Lord for? And can I enjoy that? How do I really enjoy the comfort that God has promised that won't come about by silver or gold? Or even my well-meaning friends, that I need. And should have. On that day. But I'd like to draw your attention to another important theme in Zephaniah. And that is simply seeking the Lord. 
seeking the Lord. In chapter 2, we begin to see a little bit of a round of encouragements, of exhortations uh, from Zephaniah. For instance, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, gather together. In chapter 3, he says, seek the Lord. And we have this idea of seeking that shows up uh, on a few occasions here in the book of Zephaniah. And we also recognize, of course, that it's a significant theme in the scriptures. One of the biggest reasons the prophecy of Zephaniah has been neglected is also the biggest reason that it should be highly regarded. There's nothing new in Zephaniah. Now, maybe I shouldn't have told you that at this point in the sermon because you might just turn it off, right? I was waiting for that new thing. But Zephaniah is encouraging us to do that which we're also exhorted to in other places in Scripture, to look again to the old paths and to really affirm and recognize that it isn't that they don't work. It's that we really haven't entered into them, right? Or that we've stopped short or that we stop doing them altogether, right? Entering into the old paths, He really has nothing new. What he has is this idea of the right judgment of God upon a rebellious people and that of God's promise of covenantal care and salvation. What has God said? The Lord Jesus summed it up. I'm with you until the end of the age. Zephaniah urges a return to that which has always been true. He reminds us of the old truths about God, about ourselves, and about the future. As I mentioned, Zephaniah indicates that God will not only convert the elect in chapter 3, verses 9 and 12, but also that he'll remove from their presence the proudly exultant ones who reject God in verse 311. So the rest of the time we have in the prophet Zephaniah, I would, Lord willing, like to draw your attention to one theme and one theme alone, that is seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29 says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. First Chronicles 16.11 Seek the Lord and his strength. And his presence, seek his presence continually. Psalm 22.26 The afflicted shall lead and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Now, This is a a great place to look for a simple example of our own life experience. Psalm 22, 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Now, how many of you have eaten? let, Let me start before that. How many of you have experienced being hungry, eating, and being satisfied? Hopefully that's something that's in your experience. Being hungry, eating, being satisfied. 
Now, this is set up as uh, really a, an example or an analogy of what the Lord is talking about in seeking Him, right? You seek the Lord, and you're satisfied in finding the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean it's necessarily a simple matter, but nonetheless, what's promised is the same kind of, albeit in a spiritual way, satisfaction. The afflicted shall lead and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Why? Well, because their seeking of the Lord has been successful. Isaiah 45, 19 I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. In other words, the Lord is saying in Isaiah 45, I didn't exhort God's people to seek me such that it would be an empty thing. I spoke the truth. Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Now, there are certain conditions to the seeking of the Lord. What does it mean? God says, seek me, but I'm not able without the Holy Spirit's power. Loosing me from my debilitating depravity. He says, seek me, and he doesn't say, seek me in vain. But the Bible also reveals in Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. They have, have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread. Ezekiel 34:11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. I am grateful that in a number of ways the phrase coined a few decades ago, seeker-sensitive, has been recognized for the fraud that it is. However, we should see, and Ezekiel actually affirms this idea, that doesn't mean that there isn't a seeker. (laughs) It's just that who is the seeker? Well, the seeker is God. As a matter of fact, the Bible says uh, right here, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. The Lord Jesus Christ repeats the same idea. But the Lord has also, not only is He a seeker, but He has called us to seek Him. He has called us to seek Him. He's called us to do something in which the Holy Spirit must be involved. Seeking the Lord is an activity of the redeemed. 
really should indicate a few things to us. For instance, it should indicate to us that the Lord is findable. Seek me. He doesn't say that in vain. You can be satisfied by seeking the Lord. We also see that in this the Lord should be sought. You should be able to not only be excited about seeking the Lord day by day, but see that He has called us to do that. The redeemed must be exhorted and reminded to seek the Lord. You say, well, I, I know I should do that. Well, okay, yeah. Are there other things that you know you should do that you're not actually doing right now? And you're like, well, how am I ever going to get there? And one of the ways, of course, is the exhortations of Scripture, the encouragement, right? As the Apostle Paul said, you provoke me to good works. We need that. Also, we see in this that knowing the Lord is like a search. Coming to know the Lord better is like a search. It's like looking for something. It's like seeking for a thing. All of us, it's a common experience that all of us have had. Have you ever lost anything? You know, and when we lose things, we, we can say, well, well, I never wanted that thing anyway. I'm not looking. <laughs> but that, of course, isn't the way we seek the Lord, right? There's an earnestness about it. You've all lost things that are valuable. You've misplaced things that are very precious to you. And as the parables say in the run-up to the parable of the prodigal son, that which was lost is found. There's great fervor in that. The lost coin and the lost sheep. There's also great fervor in the lost son who's found. Knowing the Lord is like a search. Searches are made using effective means or ineffective means. Mary and I were just working on the car a few days ago and we dropped a little plastic thing. And I had told Mary that if we could only invent a plastic magnet. I could search for the plastic thing that was lost with a magnet, but that would be an example, uh, obviously, of an inefficient means. Because unless that magnet had some sort of sticky glue on the end, it was never going to attract a piece of plastic. Methods of seeking. The disposition of the searcher, that which we are looking for. The disposition of that which we are looking for. The circumstantial and environmental factors of the search. The timing of the search. The time allowed or available to seek things. The capabilities of the seeker. The intensity of the desire to find that which is sought. All of these things are important when we seek the Lord, right? How many of us have known the goodness of doing a thing, but we just couldn't do it? Too exhausted. My frame of mind is such that I can't even see. I'm so 
fill in the blank that I, I don't feel that I can. The disposition of the one seeking, right? But also the Lord. I mean, we've all played hide and seek, right? Well, sometimes people that play hide and seek, the people that are hiding, sometimes they move. They go to a place where you've already looked. Is that the way God works? Is He eluding us in a way that is unkind? No, of course not. He says, when I call upon you to seek me, I'm telling the truth. I didn't mean to seek me in vain. Lastly, as we think about just this seeking, the disposition of the seeker, is this a one-time event? Who of us has said, I found the Lord? But the more we look into the Scriptures and we understand the idea of knowing God, of growing in our knowledge of God, of gaining right wisdom of the fear of the Lord and of the joy of really enjoying the Lord more fully comes with our continuation of seeking the Lord, right? So, so uh, we can say uh, uh, graciously and humbly, I found the Lord, but we're going to have the same excitement tomorrow. Or we can as we seek the Lord tomorrow, as we look at the world around us in a way and consider how it is that He is, in fact, revealing Himself in His book of nature and in His book of the Word of God. We'll always be seeking the Lord. So, you may have a question, well, isn't God always with us? I mean, God is omnipresent, right? We, we know that God is omnipresent, omni-always, right? Present, with us. When the Lord says to seek Him, uh, is He somehow indicating that He isn't omnipresent? No. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew twenty-eight twenty, I am with you always. We're talking about a, really a special presence of the Lord known only by the redeemed who seek Him. One of the things that the men uh, were learning in our own theology study was this idea that when God, when you learn about God, it's because God has revealed Himself to you. And while I think it's appropriate that we get excited about seeking for the Lord, we need to remind ourselves that God uh, isn't one who we surprise with our presence. We never sneak up on the Lord. When we find a thing out about God, it's because He has determined personally and individually to tell us that thing. Or to show us that thing. That's part of uh, what it means to be God. So when is He not with us in that special way? 
Well, as Psalm 105 verse 4 indicates, because He isn't always with us, we're commended to seek the Lord. I recognize that on occasion when your mother has asked you to find something, you sheepishly pull it out of your pocket and you say, is this what you're looking for? And so the search is over, right? But you see, that's not the way we seek the Lord, right? There's always ways in which we can learn. And because He isn't always with us in this way that He is exhorting us to, Chapter 1, verse 6, when is God not with us? To answer that question, when is God not with us? Well, one of those occasions is when people turn back from following the Lord or inquiring of the Lord. I've use on a number of occasions the simple illustration of the Lord Jesus on that boat with the disciples in the Sea of Galilee when the storm comes up and He says, where is your faith? And we all remember that He wasn't accusing them of not being redeemed. What He's accusing them of is that they weren't seeking the Lord. They had saving faith. It's just that they weren't looking to it or to the the Lord Jesus of that faith. To not follow, to not inquire, as verse 6 of chapter 1 indicates, would be not seeking the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 8, appeasing others who promise to help and support in ways that only God can, that would be to not seek the Lord. Now, I've always been a little bit uncomfortable uh, with this idea of not trusting others in the context of seeking the Lord. Because I think sometimes uh, the implication is is that we don't actually need anyone. Uh, That the urgency of having good friends who are biblically minded and that can help provide me a helpful counsel and encouragement and occasional rebuke and exhortation is unnecessary. And that is not what Zephaniah is saying. What he's saying is, is that when we look to other people to do the things that God has determined that he would do, that's when I'm in danger and that's when I need to seek the Lord. Good friends are absolutely essential in this life that God has given us. But they aren't God, right? And seeking them isn't the same as seeking God. Taking matters into our own hands, as indicated in verse 9 of chapter 1, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. We've seen a lot of that in our day. I'll just take it. Things aren't going well. Taking matters into our own hands. Now, likely most of us haven't uh, violently rushed upon a building and 
vandalized and taken what we wanted. Likely we haven't done that, but we have uh, been guilty of taking matters into our own hands, right? Of being frustrated with the Lord's action in a place where He must act, not waiting on Him, not being patient with Him, and taking matters into our own hands. That's what's being addressed here. And also, ultimately, in verse 12, when God is not with us, when is God not with us? Well, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. Those who reject the idea that God can be found, that His presence can be enjoyed, that He involves Himself in the daily affairs of mankind, that there is such a thing as objective truth, that God-shaped ethics is available to us. This idea that everything isn't a matter of opinion, that there is a right and a wrong and that it can be determined. I am persuaded this is a pretty significant issue in our day. This idea that even well-meaning Christians really express this kind of attitude that God isn't going to act, that there really isn't a good or a bad, that everything in, in the Scriptures and every activity or praxis of the Scriptures, practice of believers, that's only a matter of opinion. That's the idea of complacency. We, we've, all, we've all involved ourselves in discussing theological and biblical matters, and at the end of that discussion, often what happens, unfortunately, is this idea uh, that there actually is no objective truth, that everything I do is a matter of opinion, that I can stack uh, on my side uh, a certain number of teachers and so forth that agree with me and that you can do that on the same side over here. And therefore, what that indicates is there really is no truth. And this is the idea that I'm persuaded that Zephaniah is really getting at. And it really does impact us and who we are because what it ends up doing is everything is just this mushy middle where nothing really matters. There's no conviction. There's no real passion to follow the Lord. There's no even there's not even an expectation that there is a right thing and that God will show me what that right thing is so that I can do it. This is this is fundamental to our cultural experience in the present. And that's when we most desperately need to seek the Lord because that really is what's being revealed at those moments. What does it mean to seek the Lord? What does it mean to seek the Lord? That's a great question. Well, let's look at chapter 2. As I mentioned, the first indication of that in Zephaniah, at least as I would look at this, is gather. 
Gather yourselves. Now, I would draw your attention to two ideas with the gather. The first is this idea of, as I love to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones say, take yourself in hand. This idea when there seems to be a situation where there's a few people present and one individual seems to be really kind of stressed, paralyzed, not really knowing what to do. And there's this idea, gather yourself. Get it all together. Right? That's one of the things that Zephaniah is saying in this gather yourself. This idea that we're going to take inventory. Not in morbid introspection, but we're, we're looking objectively, assessing based on the Scriptures. Am I earnestly seeking the Lord? Have I given up walking with Christ? Where am I today? Am I looking to other things for the type of fulfillment that only Christ can satisfy? Am I, am I waiting on the Lord? Gather. Gather yourself. Take yourself in hand. Get it together, as he says. And this isn't an exhortation to kind of, you know, just sort of straighten up on your own, but really to assess honestly, where am I with the Lord? And the Bible reveals to us that we really can get an understanding of where we stand with God. Not perfectly, but that's a reason that we want to stay in the Word of God. We want to actively pray that the Lord will help us to understand and assess our own spiritual condition. We can talk to other faithful believers that can help us to get a hold of that as well. And secondly, and undoubtedly, this involves a return to the commitment of faithful assembly. A return to the commitment of the faithful gathering of God, right? Do I cultivate an ability to really gain spiritually in the assembly? Do I listen humbly? Do I think deeply? Do I trust God? Do I worship His majesty? What are you, what are you trying to accomplish when you come on a Lord's Day morning? What does the Lord intend to do? How much does that involve my own disposition as one who has been enabled by the Holy Spirit to seek the Lord? And I want to encourage you in the midst of this to recognize this wonderful truth that God is for us. He isn't elusive. He doesn't desire to hide from you. But there are things that we need to think about as we gather ourselves and as we gather together. Secondly, in chapter 3, verse 8, there's this idea of waiting for the Lord. The Bible says in verse 8 of chapter 3, Therefore, wait for me. Wait for what only He can do. Wait for Him to release you from the guilt and power of sin. Likely, we have sought comfort from the guilt and power of sin from things that are not God. But God will release us from that. And He will bring comfort as He's promised. Wait for the Lord to bring comforting assurance. Wait for the Lord to supply spiritual security. 
that isn't in those things that he hasn't designed to provide spiritual security with. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have a savings account or a retirement plan. It just means that he, he has an aspect, an entire really area of security uh, that only he can give you. And he will give you. He'll give you hope for the future. Part of seeking the Lord is seeking the Lord as refuge. Seeking the Lord as refuge. Verse 12 of chapter 3, I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. You may say, well, yes, I'm seeking the Lord. But you may have to admit that you're not seeking the Lord as refuge. I'm seeking the Lord as a reason for me to slam my coworker. I'm seeking the Lord so that I can use Him as an excuse for this or that or the other. I'm seeking the Lord in this case, but He's calling us to seek the Lord as refuge. Now that isn't the only part, obviously, that God plays. But again, as we think about the disposition of the one seeking God, what are you up to? What are you thinking? How many of us have sought the Lord, though we be absolutely redeemed, we've sought the Lord for purposes that He wouldn't approve of? We seek the Lord out of pride to win an argument, to make our case, to defend something. Certainly there may be a place to seek the Lord in a apologetic kind of conversation to understand what he's saying. But nonetheless, we, we experientially have understood that seeking the Lord has to come with a certain disposition and expectation. Chapter 3, verse 14, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Do you seek the Lord in that way? Sing aloud. Whenever you go to like a general assembly, like for our own network of churches. Often the singing there is very loud and encouraging. It's very powerful. The one and only Banner of Truth conference that I ever went to was over 20 years ago. And before I went, I heard people say, yeah, you'll come back for the singing. But I heard someone say something about that singing that I thought was particularly insightful. What an expression of a need for Christ. The joyful and exuberant singing of God's people as an expression of needing Christ. Not even necessarily as an expression 
of worshiping Christ or exalting Christ, of course, all of which are absolutely right and appropriate, but when's the last time you thought about your singing as an expression of needing Christ? And we would all have to admit, or at least many of us would have likely experienced being in a church fellowship where the singing was rather lackluster. And we would also likely have to admit that part of the reason, as we think about that and not even have to think very deeply, it's possible that part of the reason that singing was lackluster was because there was no sense of needing Christ. There's no sense of neediness. There's no sense of a desire, of a longing simply to know God. Persuaded that's what Zephaniah is talking about here. In the subject of seeking the Lord, sing aloud. O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart. We can put this into the context of seeking the Lord. Verse 15, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. He's in your midst. Okay, we, we shift away from a recognition of our own neediness, and now, now Zephaniah is directing us to take inventory of what He's done for you. What has this God done? Taken away judgments. Believe, don't doubt that God means what He says. What has He said? He will clear away His enemies. He will bring forgiveness. Verse 17. Simply the same thing the Lord Jesus said as I referenced in the book of Matthew. I am in your midst. God with us. God with us. This common phrase, God with us, is no doubt an allusion to rightly seeking and finding the Lord. It's the special presence of God among the redeemed in the midst of seeking and finding the Lord. He is mighty and He will save us. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that He will rejoice over us. Again, the reference right here in verse 14 was to us rejoicing in God. But let's not forget that God also rejoices in us. Luke chapter 15, verse 10. Just so I will tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You say, okay. Well, how about verse 17 in chapter 3? The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. It's fine for you to ask the question, what's in it for me when I seek the Lord? I hope you will ask that question. And what a great answer that we have from God through the prophet Zephaniah. He will rejoice over you with gladness. 
He will quiet you by His love. Anybody out there want to have a soul that's quieted and comforted by God? Anybody out there have a soul that's in turmoil, the same as old Martin Luther did in 1517? Tormented. Tormented by something that he knew was true that wasn't true. What did Luther know? He knew that God was angry with him. But that wasn't the whole truth. The other truth was that the redeeming God exalts over him. You ever think about God in that way? As you seek the Lord? Do you have a picture of God being happy about you as an individual? That He is literally joyful about the redeemed, even in the midst of their imperfections. He exalts over you. What does that mean? But that the disposition of our Heavenly Father toward the redeemed is that of an individual joy over this individual sinner now redeemed. The Bible says that He'll gather us together in verse 3.18. No longer alone. In order to do what? What will He do with the redeemed when they're together? It's not to wallop them. It's to bless them. It's to bless them. He'll deal with our oppressors. And He'll gather the outcast. It'll no longer be those foolish Christians. But it'll be the wise people of God that enjoy renown. Renown. 